All right, we'll go ahead and get started here. I will uh, open us in a word of prayer, and then we will, we will dig into the Anabaptists and some, some Calvin and get into a little bit of Calvin's theology. And then uh, next week, we'll look at the, the English Reformation, the, the, the Counter-Reformation, Council of Trent, and um, probably look at a few more minor players, too, um, leading into some post-Reformation stuff. Maybe a little bit Huguenots. We'll get into them a little bit, so that should be good. So let's pray. Father, you, you are truly, truly good to us. And even seeing this group walk in in the context of church history where uh, different groups at different times could not walk into a building could not own a building safely, um, might not even at times be able to recognize other believers on the street because they don't want to get caught or abused. Um, behind me, we have a baptism container of water that uh, at different times could not be used because it was considered against the history of the church by many and uh, people standing out in the snow and pouring water on each other for baptism. Lord, we are, are really, really abundantly blessed. Even, even when we think in the political sphere and all of the unrest and wars and all those things, this has been the norm for centuries and centuries and centuries. And we thank you that we trust in you and not political right or wrong, though we long for it. Um, may we increasingly see our, our need for you and that you are all that we truly need. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we will we'll dig in here to the Anabaptists. I think I referenced last week. I think a little bit in our reform circles, we are harder on the Anabaptists than we ought to be many times. And maybe the flip side of that is, is others are more lenient on them than they ought to be, potentially. So I, I just want to look at some of the Anabaptists and some of the good and some of the negative. Um, because you read some Reformed individuals, maybe pastors more than church historians, almost kind of write them off as, oh, they're a bunch of wackos, or they were all a bunch of radicals, and there definitely were in there, and we're going to look at some of them, but many of them did things really similarly to what we do today, and, and there's, some, there's some good in that. And I think even in, as we look at Anabaptists and Calvin and see some differences, we're going to see big picture God working and God refining the church, and we're going to be seeing those that if the church is the, if the true church of God is the ship going down the middle, let's say, of the, the river here, if this is a river here, you're going to see groups jump into boats and go kind of off into the edges and pull out onto shore and leave the, the true Christianity. And, and though we hate seeing that, that's, we, we see that today as well, and it troubles us today as well, and we're saddened today as well. But it's, it's not new now. And so when we have groups that splinter off and they, they say they're Christians and are not, I think it gives us confidence to say, based on the word of God, 
you are outside of the faith. We're saddened by it. We're horrified by it. We want to challenge you about it. But this isn't something new in history. And I think even in the church, when we have, let's say we had some really, really challenging thing in our church next week, that all of a sudden there was some huge blow up and there was a huge issue. And what are we going to do? This is not new in local churches. And in many of these reformers, this was the norm. They might have a few years of peace, if you will. And there was just challenges on every side. And it would be, um, it would be like if, if our church is going as it is, and all of a sudden I get some wacky belief system and I take a group off and we go out into, you know, into a, a, a non-God honoring way of thinking. How would the church respond? Does it, does it wreck our church if Thad goes off into the weeds? It, it ought not to. I mean, it should sadden. Um, I, I had told one of the men at the men's breakfast yesterday, and I had said this to a pastor that I saw at T4G, that if I could explain our church to them, I, I told them if, if I went off into sin, there's... 30 men, I said men, but it'd be men and women, and there probably is more, that would come up to me and say, hey Thad, look to Christ, look to the word, this is not right, follow Christ. I mean, it is a, a huge amount of people in this church would come and, and would say, no, 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 this, this ought not to be. And I, I think that is, mar- and he, he heard that, I think I said 40 to him actually, and he said, really, that, that's an amazing church that you're part of. And I think truly that's what we ought to be. But if and when people go into sin, we need to lovingly and kindly woo them back, challenge them, encourage them. But that has been the norm throughout history of people leaving right and going to wrong. And some of them come back and some of them do not. And, and at the same time, we looked about this quite a bit with, with uh, last week, our first week on the Reformation, um, There are, are godly men and women who have 90% of the things in their life you would say, hey, kids, be like that. But they'll have percentages of things you'll say, don't be like that, okay? I was, I was rereading a little Luther this week, and there was this Anabaptist-leaning guy, and he had gone up to Luther and said, man, you've influenced me so well, and, and you're doing... I, this is going to change how I do some of my things. Thank you so much. And Luther told him, you're of another spirit, go. <laughs> like, I'm not even going to talk with you. And, and I don't know all the details of this, of this German pastor, but it surely looks like he's a believer. And he actually wrote later something along the lines to a friend of like, though Luther didn't like me, he's influenced me more than any other human, and I'm so thankful for him. But Luther said, you're not a Christian, go. So, and I wasn't there, and I don't know all the details, but I hear that and I think, ugh, you know, we can, we can do better than that. And so even as we, even as we look at these, be thinking, along, be thinking along those lines, watching for those things, and giving us comfort as well. So a little bit for us to think about here. Um, we'll get into this quote in just a second, but if we think of Jesus' teaching on how a Christian should think in the secular sphere— most of the reformers wouldn't even agree with that statement. They would say everything is together. And to a degree, we would as well. And we could spend quite a bit of time with this, but we won't. But, you know, we talked a little bit weeks ago with Constantine, and all of a sudden Christianity went from a, a you are not allowed to religion 
to a you are required to religion in, in maybe one generation and what that would do to a community and to a way of thinking. And the reformers fought some of those similar things. We're going to be looking at some of that today. But if you look at Jesus saying, um, you know, render under to Caesar the things that are Caesar, things that are God's, the things that are God's, and maybe even the expectation of Jesus that you will have persecution. Maybe the expectation of Jesus that um, you're going to be hated by all, that they're going to be against you, that this Christianity is, is not going to be popular, if you will. Uh, and then you see some of the things that some of the reformers did that we looked at last week, looked at Luther um, and Zwingli last week quite a bit. Um, really, these men, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and the list kind of goes on. We think of, of uh, Romans 13 and um, that God institutes the political sphere and they don't wield the sword in vain. And we look at it, most of us look at it and say, boy, we are so thankful when Christians can be in, have political influence. I hope that we vote. I, you know, if, if one of you becomes the mayor of Owensboro, I'd love it. Um, those, those are really, really good things to do. But at the same time, we recognize um, Christianity is often not popular in the secular political sphere. But uh, Calvin would, would not have a concept of that. When, and, and we'll look at this. When, when the, he had a complete overlap of of church influence and political influence together, and, and together they were going to, to run this thing really as a theocracy, and it didn't always work well. And we don't have that expectation generally today, but if, as things always circle around, we're ever at a time where that is the norm, be very, very careful, because the slippery slope of that gets into some, some ugly stuff. So, you know, we have reforming reforming leaders that we respect, doing some things we don't respect as far as armies enforcing religion, um, forcing. Luther, probably more than anything, saw the, the political realm being the enforcers of the religious realm, if you will. Um, and the New Testament uh, contrast talking about that. Oh, a little, a little bit of review before we get into Anabaptists as well. We think of Origen uh, that we looked at weeks and weeks and weeks ago and his assumption that he was going to be killed. He was going to be a martyr. And as a teenager, his dad is dragged away. His dad's going to be a martyr. And Origen's like, I'm going too because I, I want Christ. I want to follow Christ. I assume I'm going to be a martyr. He's the one his mom hid his clothes or at least his outer garments and he wasn't able to go. Um, Constantine, and um, kind of the norm in the thinking of the Reformation became for many people, I'm a Protestant, not a Roman Catholic, because I was baptized as an infant, and I'm a member of this church because of my baptism, and I'm a member of this community, all because of my baptism and where I live. And so... I'm part of Owensboro, and so I'm, this is just who I am. And so you might sit out here and think, I may or I may not even believe in this Jesus Christ, but this is what my family does. And so in a, in a sense, a little bit what we see in the Bible Belt with Christianity, 
Whereas if I, if I go and I talk to one of the farmers near me out in Ohio County, generally they would be a Baptist. Generally they're a member of a church. Generally they're not a follower of Christ. There's some, there's some norms that were being pushed even in the Reformation and, and those type of things were happening there as well. So a little bit with the Anabaptists. So we have a, a quote by John Quincy Adams up here. Actually, John DeVito had this up a while back and I thought it was really good. And um, he would say that this is clearly not our president. He's a few years off. Uh, but he, he sees this as the chief weakness of the reformers in the Reformation. So it says the religious reformer does not invoke civil power. He does not seek to force men by legal enactments to embrace his views or to profess attachment to his cause. He does not seek to unite the church with the state or enforce his teaching at the edge of the sword and at the point of the bayonet. He does not use persecution or oppression of any kind. He's saying that ought not to be. Here is one radical defect of the Reformation of the 16th century. That's the 1500s that we're looking at today. The civil arm was invoked. The state was united with the church. A political element was infused and carnal weapons were used as freely by the Reformed churches in enforcing their dogmas as by the papacy in maintaining its heresies. The thorough religious reformer uses no such weapons. Um, there are those that argue um, that as, as many true Christians were killed during the, let's say, the hundred years, let's say the 1500s, as there were in the first, third century, first three centuries, after the coming of Christ until Constantine. I, I can't confirm that because those numbers, nobody recorded their numbers. We don't really, really know. Uh, a low number on the amount of Anabaptists killed is between five and 6,000. Um, uh, Justo Gonzalez, who was the, for 40 years has been kind of the conservative um, church history theologian that was just used by I would say virtually everybody, but maybe not. But I mean, he's really, really, really trusted. He made that quote about the amount of people killed just in the 1500s of true believers being killed, oftentimes by other true believers, be his argument. So what are some things that we could look at? Um, Anabaptist distinctives. And, and Anabaptist means, uh, Zwingli actually came up probably with a term. It means rebaptizers. Anabaptists themselves would say, I'm not a rebaptizer because I've never been truly baptized before. So uh, at that time, the norm was infant baptism, certainly with Luther, uh, even the pre-reformers, clearly, clearly. Zwingli's kind of interesting because in early, early writings, Zwingli in one place that we looked at last week says, you could make a really good case that I might even agree with, I'm paraphrasing, to baptize one not as an infant, but as a believer. But then when all the goofiness and, and wild radicalness in some of the Anabaptists came along, he went hard against that, and he was putting these rebaptizers to death as well. So uh, Zurich, 1525. Um, so we're, we're only eight years after really the start of the Reformation with, with Luther in Germany. So we're in Zurich, Switzerland, and um, Zwingli has been preaching. Remember, Zwingli was preaching quite similarly to Luther in a parallel line, even though he had never met Luther and he hadn't, he was preaching basically, basically what he continued to preach the rest of his life for two years before he even read Luther's writing. Um, Zwingli dies in 1531, this is, had 
bashed in and, and uh, in war and chopped to pieces and such. But uh, George Blaurock, who was a former priest, and Conrad Grable basically came to the point. They're, they're citizens of Zurich. So this is Zwingli's deal, okay? And they are gifted, educated, studying the Bible, and they're saying, Zwingli, we got to go more. Zwingli, there's, it's, we, we're not going far enough. We need to have believers' baptism. We need to have, they have this list of things that they eventually came up with. And Zwingli would work with them, not work with them. He saw their point on some things, disagreed vehemently on some other things. Um, these guys got more radical as they made the split because then you have to justify the split, if you will. So in January of that year, they get out uh, one pours water on the other one. This is cold, Switzerland. One pours water on the other one. The other one pours water on the other one. Then they baptize 15 more people right there. Um, Zwingli comes out and says, no one is allowed to stop baptizing infants. A couple farmers in that area say, well, these people have stopped, so what are you going to do about it? And Zwingli was basically going to kill people if they were citizens of Zurich. So if they were in that area. Now, if they were outside, there's different jurisdictions, different things happened. Um, so uh, baptism of believers, huge central distinction that they would have. Uh, the picture on the side there is a very normal, oh, you like water so much, we're going to drown you. So... Um, and, and the picture is supposed to be showing that both the uh, um, Roman Catholic uh, monk right here and the uh, Calvinist are both, or Zwinglian, are both having a part in tying their legs and throwing them in the water. And the guilt of these, these pictures almost always show church spires in the background, recognizing authority of the civil government and the authority of the church and lots and lots of people having a hand in it, having the guilt on all, um, being thrown in the water right there. Um, pacifism is another one. Now, we'll, we'll see as we look a little bit more, a lot of them were killing people as well, Anabaptists, but generally, increasingly, pacifism became the, the norm. Um, state and church separated. They would just say, as we will respect the state until the state goes against the word of God, and then we're going with the word of God. Um, Luther especially has no concept of this, and, and um, a lot of the Anabaptists emphasize too much the New Testament in neglecting the Old, in that many of them would virtually ignore the Old Testament, and many of our thoughts on, on a variety of theological things are are in seed stage in the Old Testament and clearly, clearly explained in the New Testament. But they would say, hey, we, we want to have, have no part with this. And one of the issues would be, so if, if this part of the room right here were Anabaptists, and you're saying, I'm not, you know, I'll pay the taxes I have to pay, but no, I'm not sending my kid away to be a part of your army. That's just unheard of at that time because you got to do something. Farms aren't big enough especially in, in Switzerland, where these little bitty hillside farms, you send your kids away to be mercenaries. I mean, that's really the norm in Switzerland at that time. And um, no, I'm not going to send my kid away. Uh, no, I, I, I'm not even going to vote. I don't want to have any part of what's going on politically. I just want to quietly be here and be part of my church. Well, how, how can you even do that? There'd be no concept of that for them. And um, uh, no oaths would be another one. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear by the gold of the temple. Uh, communion, an outward sign, 
remembrance and a gracious gift, but separating the real presence of Christ in it. It's a big deal. And we looked at that a lot last week, so we won't, we won't get into those details again. And then um, foot washing being another one. And I've always thought that was somewhat interesting. I, I had to write a paper in seminary on why you should or shouldn't foot wash, which seems so unusual. None of you who've been to seminary have ever written a paper on foot washing. But where I went to seminary, north of Philadelphia, huge amounts of Mennonites there. I mean, there are Mennonites. That was the biggest congregation were, were Mennonites where we lived. And then as you go west, uh, an hour and 15 minutes from us. And so it was a real issue in churches, whether that was the third ordinance, um, third ordinance of the church. Um, and those were big things for them, you know, John 13. Um, I will say this, as, as you look at the list right here, I had never been around the Mennonite Amish community much until I was in seminary. And I worked with some Mennonites and I would just say, hey, you know, what's, what's the deal with this or why do you think this way? And Because I, I think I had a more negative idea about it. But hearing these people, I can think of two individuals, deeply loved the Lord, sought to know him and follow him, and, and had some different had some different theology than I did, but having them explain why they believed what they believed in some of these was kind of somewhat eye-opening for them. And I still remember them saying, I would, I would never want my, I would never choose to be a police officer. And I just thought, that's crazy. It'd be, my kids are police officers. I'd be proud of them that they're helping keep people safe and for justice to happen and those kind of things. But he said the thought of killing someone and sending them to hell we're thankful for those that work in those kind of areas, but I would never, ever want that to be on my conscience. Anyway, it was, just, it was interesting. I, I would disagree with that, but it was, it was interesting talking, uh, talking with them and thankful for those, those friends. Um, this is in Munster. So things, um, Catholics started condemning, you know, so remember Switzerland at this time is, there's Roman Catholic cantons, there's Protestant cantons, and then the Anabaptists are kind of scattered around. And the Roman Catholics said in 1525, like, ain't going to happen. If we find Anabaptists, these guys are crazy. We're killing them. Then um, Zwingli, at first, he was pretty gracious early on, and then he started saying, all right, now, we, 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 can't, be, we can't be having this. Um, uh, so Felix Manns, he was the early one. He was drowned. They threw him in the river. Uh, Grable and Blaurock. Uh, Blaurock was beaten but he wasn't actually a citizen of Zurich. So they said, okay, well, you can go, but you have to go. They, they beat him up and sent him on his way. He ends up going to Austria, I think to Innsbruck, where the concentration camp was. And Roman Catholics got him there and, and burned him at the stake. Um, Grable, I can't remember how he, I think actually Grable got away. He ran off for a while, was jailed for a while, escaped. And I think a year later, it looked like he was home free and he died from the plague. Again, the plague was still rearing its ugly head there. So um, there was that. Um, Zwingli started persecuting in 1528, so about three years after it started. Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, started killing them off as well. Um, some godly leaders were killed and killed and killed and some more ungodly leaders came up, and um, it got, so there was a lot of Anabaptists, there might be some solid ones, and then some crazy radicals. Um, 
John of Leiden is one that we can think of. He ended up being in the, uh, that's where John of Leiden ended up. Uh, he ended up in Munster. He declared himself David. Um, must have had some sort of compelling personality. Basically kicked out all the Roman Catholics. Munster was kind of a chill area at the time. Kicked out the Roman Catholic authorities. Instituted basically martial law. He's King David in the flesh says, uh, hey, you guys, I get all your wives. Polygamy is his, and, and it, I mean, it was nuts. Eventually, some of his lieutenants let the Roman Catholics in and they captured him and a couple of his second in commands. And um, this is the local church there in Munster. And actually, this is still up. You can still see these cages. They killed them and then they hung them up there and they said their bones were still there for between 50 and 60 years later, they were still bones up there. So you can still go see that today. And they, they were killed. Um, Menno Simons kind of comes on, we think of Mennonites, Menno Simons comes on the scene and, and really cleans things up to some degree. Uh, Menno Simons is kind of a neat guy because he was probably handicapped, at least early pictures of him, he's always on crutches. And he's kind of, he's actually from the Netherlands and he kind of travels around. He's traveling with three kids and a wife and some type of handicap. And he is saying, knock off all that, all that radical stuff. You need to follow Christ, follow scripture. Don't fight back. If they want to kill you, let them kill you. And, and his followers today are Mennonites, although he wouldn't fully agree with everything that Mennonites do. Um, a lot of these Anabaptists moved north into Moravia. And then later we can think of John Wesley being influenced by these Moravians. And he feels like he truly came to Christ, hearing them pray and sing on the boat. Generally Arminian in their theology, and Menno Simons definitely was. He sees some cooperation in salvation rather than God's complete and good work. Um, downplayed the Old Testament. Um, a lot of Anabaptists, you know, these congregational church structure, Zwingli talked about it, but Anabaptists did it uh, in ways that would be pretty similar to what we would appreciate today. And then the idea of every believer being a disciple not just, I was baptized as a baby, you should do better, but, but truly, truly, and, and really, Luther wanted that, and Zwingli wanted that, and Calvin wanted that, but these Anabaptists were, you are not a follower of Christ if you're not a disciple of Christ. You are not in Christ. You are not the bride of Christ if you are not a disciple of his. I think that's really good. Um, here's a letter, and I think I've actually read this in a sermon here. If not, I've, I've read it in the past, but... Um, this is a letter from a young mother in the 1500s to her daughter that was only a few days old. The father had already been, this is an Anabaptist woman, the father had already been executed as an Anabaptist. Uh, the mother is in a Belgium jail, has been reprieved only long enough to give birth to her child. She writes to urge her daughter not to grow up ashamed of her parents. She says, my dearest child, the true love of God strengthen you in virtue. You who are yet so young and whom I must leave in this wicked, evil, perverse world. Oh, that it had pleased the Lord that I might have brought you up. But it seems that is not the Lord's will. Be not ashamed of us. It is the way which the prophets and apostles went. Your dear father demonstrated with his blood that it is genuine faith. And I also hope to attest the same with my blood. The flesh and blood remain, must remain on the posts and on the stake, well knowing that we shall meet hereafter. And I think of that woman thinking, being in Belgium, she knew that Roman Catholics were going to raise her little girl, and she wouldn't get the opportunity to point her to Christ, but saying, I'm going to trust in Almighty God. 
I think many of the Anabaptists are those that we could and should emulate at least some of what they have done. Here's a, a picture here of this man is trying to save him. He's been thrown through the ice and these people are supposed to be looking on and this is his friend that wants to save him but cannot. Yeah, so that happened, happened a lot. And I, I think of if you and when, I should say when you are discouraged at times over the state of the church, when you think, how come churches can't get along? Why are people in the name of Christ doing this or doing this or doing this? Be reminded, this is not new, but God is building his kingdom. And, and I think another one to think of is when you're at your lowest times, we can look at people and think, oh, that guy had it perfect, or oh, that guy had everything go so well. And you think, you know, Menno Simons was on crutches trying to keep his wife and three kids alive and preach. And Lord, work in your way. Or, you know, hear all these unnamed, some farmer outside of Zurich saying, I'm going to follow Christ. Well, you're going to die. It looks like I'm going to die. And God used in his sovereignty to move people all over, South America, North America, different places in Europe, um, but saying, I'm going to trust in Almighty God and how he works. Um, Menno Simons, O ever-living God, through the merits of thy Son and through the riches of thy grace, we receive the remission of our sins. No other thing. Okay, uh, Calvin for a little bit, 1509 to 1564. I have some quotes by Calvin. This one, uh, being by nature a bit antisocial and shy, I always loved retirement and peace, but God has so whirled me around by various events that he has never let me rest anywhere except resting in him. And, uh, you know, Calvin wanted to be a scholar. He's born... Um, I wonder if I have it. Yeah, um, he's born uh, here, north of Paris. Does some studying in Paris. Um, his dad is basically an attorney or manager for a local bishop, so he's studying theology here in Paris. But he's not a believer yet. In fact, he says, um, "I was stubbornly tied to the superstitions of the papacy." Uh, his dad got fired and died not too long afterwards. So um, Calvin ends up kind of studying in this area down here, and he's studying law. Um, at some point, he comes to Christ. You know, Luther writes these beautiful words understanding justification and, and, and how his eyes were open to Christ, and Calvin doesn't really do that. So we don't really know at what point Calvin came to Christ. It was like over time before he understood, I'm a follower of Christ. I, I trust in him. Uh, at some point, Calvin is down here. He, so he's he has to run. Francis I of France is starting to kill uh, Protestants. Uh, Calvin runs over here. He's in, in Basel. And uh, at some point he ends up, he's been through Geneva. He's, he's starting to write. He writes the Institutes and it's uh, six chapters. You know, he's famous for the Institutes, but he's, you know, he's a young, young man. And he writes the Calvin's Institutes as we know them today and a shorter form of it, it's only six chapters, but it's basically exactly what he finishes with in, I think his last uh, was 15, maybe 59 is his last edition. The theology is the same, but the, the final institutes has 80 chapters. Uh, as an interesting thing, as we look at Calvin's theology a little bit, um, so many of the reformers tried to make a real separation between what the church had done in the past and, and just have, okay, well, here we are right now, and we're just going to use the Bibles. A lot of the Anabaptists were doing that. 
Calvin did a really nice job. He took the Apostles' Creed, and he took the, the four main points of the Apostles' Creed, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and, and the church. And, he, and that's how the Apostles' Creed is kind of set in those four sections. Calvin's institutes are set up in that exact same way. And what he's trying to do is saying, this faith is a historical faith. It's a trustworthy faith. We're not just making this up on the fly. It's a historical trustworthy faith. And, and it, it was true then, and it's true now. But let's follow the word of God. It's really, really well done. Calvin did a, an excellent, excellent job with that. Uh, so he has this kind of small uh, institutes right here. He ends up spending some time in Italy. He's, there's a, uh, a woman down there. I think a, she's a widow and she's kind of helping some young scholars. He just wants to be a scholar. He would like to live in Strasbourg here and just be a student, but God doesn't allow that to happen. So he's been spending some time up in here. He ends up down here in Northern Italy for a time. He's traveling back up and he stops in Geneva and kind of the famous statement, he goes in there, he just stops for the night and William Farrell is preaching there, and Farrell says, uh, we need you to be a pastor here. We need you really, really badly. And Calvin's like, you know, I'm a student. I, I just want to quietly study in the background. And um, Farrell, Farrell says, I should have had this as a slide, but he says this. He says, stay. May God condemn your repose and the calm you seek for study if before such a great need you withdraw and refuse our help. And... And Calvin's like, I don't want to do this, but I do want to follow Christ and I will stay. And I think it's similar to, we probably don't have time to get into John Knox very much next week, but John Knox has the same thing. John Knox is like a super tough guy. Scotland, a super tough, he's actually the bodyguard for, um, for another man who's then killed. So Knox is tough. And then, you know, Knox for a while is on a, a ship. He's a slave on a ship rowing all the time, almost dies. Um, someone says, hey, I will let you out if you kiss the Virgin Mary. And Knox, Knox in his writing says, and the man they, they gave that picture of the Virgin Mary to threw it out in the water. Well, it's probably Knox because he's pretty tough. Not a big guy, but a pretty tough guy. But um, when Knox was asked to be a pastor during this time when people are being killed and he had become a student, they said Knox just burst into tears. And cried and spent the night crying and praying in his room. And he came out the next day and he said, maybe it was a few days, I'd have to check on that. And he says, I want what God wants. I'll be a pastor. And, and I, th I, th I think that's, pr that's pretty amazing. Farrell, pretty brave guy. Eventually, Farrell moves to Nuchatel. And, um, and at, after a time, um, Calvin's preaching. Calvin and Farrell preaching here. Um, eventually, they get told they have to leave the church and the state. They were basically doing church discipline in a biblical way. And the, the civil authority said, you, you can't do this because the church discipline was right as they were doing it, as they were excommunicating people from the church. But then since the church and the state were so intertwined, it was also, and you can't stay in our town anymore, which is not right. Um, Calvin doesn't back down for anything that I could ever find. And so Calvin says, okay, well, I'll run up here and I'll, I'll stay in Strasbourg. Pharaoh goes to Nuchatel, preaches there. And Calvin's in Strasbourg for two or three years. While he's there, he gets married to a widow that has two kids. Um, we, we had talked a little bit last week time, Luther, how much he wouldn't give, you know, he wouldn't give up Katie for, for like France and, and uh, uh, 
I think it's maybe northern Italy, I forget what. But uh, Calvin, here's your uh, romantic thing you can say to your wife, uh, husbands. Um, he says, I, so hostile to celibacy, so he's, he's all for marriage. This is before he was married. I have never taken a wife. But if I did, it would be in order to devote more time to the Lord um, by being relieved from the worries of daily home life. Now, my wife would not like it if I would have asked to marry her by saying that. She's basically saying, like, I'm not really, I don't really need to get married, but if I did, it'd be really nice if someone could take care of the things around the house so that I could study more. Um, but then at her death, um, he says, I have no common grief. She's been the best companion of my life, which almost all these reformers were probably, many of them were very, very close with maybe a few other, maybe more minor reformers, and he was closer to her than anyone, anyone else. So he's there in, in Strasbourg for a few years, moves uh, back down Geneva, says, okay, uh, we want you back. He says um, something along the lines of, I would rather die a thousand deaths than go back to Geneva. I love it here. Uh, Strasbourg at that time actually was not in France. These are modern lines. Strasbourg was actually in Germany. So that's why he could be there because in France, um, Francis I was, would not allow that. They were being killed. Says, I'd rather die a thousand deaths, but I, I want to follow Christ. So he goes, he goes back down to Geneva. We, most of us know the story that he goes in, and the town thought he was going to you know, just rip on him and let him have it. He never says anything negative. First Sunday, he goes up, opens the Bible, and he goes right back to the next sermon in line of his expository sermons. All right, we're at the very next verse. Let's keep going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Christ. He had an amazing schedule. You know, he was preaching or teaching theology you know, eight times a week if not more. Um, so many people were coming to Geneva just to learn. You know, Knox talks about it. There's, there's Lutherans that talk about it. There was one Lutheran that was writing and saying, you know, basically, I don't, I don't know about these Calvinist guys. He worded it differently than that, but I don't know about this. And he came there and he said, I've, I've never seen any li anything like this. Knox says something along the lines of, this is the most perfect garden for growing Christianity or nursery for growing Christianity than anyone could ever see. There's some really, the Holy Spirit was working in an amazing way uh, there at that time. Um, here's a, a map. I just have this up here. I'll, I'll leave this up for a little bit. Just the, the mishmash of different belief systems and the persecution that came out of that. You guys can just look at that for a little bit as well. Um, a little bit of, of uh, Calvin's kind of famous for putting Servetus to death. He was a, a Spanish doctor. Um, he was actually, he, he ended up in Geneva because he was running. He was going to be killed by the Spanish Inquisition. And so he ran of all places to Geneva, which wasn't a let everything go kind of place. And, and, and really probably he was trying to push his beliefs and thought that might be an ideal place to do that. Um, Calvin was for putting him to death. He wanted him to be beheaded. The council voted to burn him. And actually that council was actually kind of against Calvin and trying to be for Servetus to kind of push Calvin down. And then when the community disagreed with him, the council flipped and said, oh yeah, we want to put him to death and, uh, and we want to do it in a really painful way. Um, uh, there was another another, basically the guy that argued for Servetus, and I had, I had told Pastor Mark this the other day, his last name was Costello. He'd been kicked out of Geneva as well. And uh, 
he, he was kicked out of Geneva because he believed that the Song of Solomon was a erotic love poem between an infatuated husband and an infatuated wife, and so they kicked him out of town. Need to see both. Need to see Christ there as well. Um, uh, we've just, since we've just been studying that. Um, and I, I think we'll leave that there. I don't have... Okay, yeah. Let's just look at this really quickly. Again, um, we could look in a lot of detail as, as we talked with Luther last week on, on the um, theology of each of the reformers. But just in a, in a really quick way, uh, sola gratia, grace as the reason for our salvation. Uh, we are not relying on, on other things. Um, what God has done rather than what we do, Ephesians 2. Sola fide, salvation as a free gift. Can we buy our status with God? We cannot. And for many of these, we will, we will read these and we'll think, yeah, I'm, I'm right there. What's the big deal? It's a big deal at this time. Um, Calvin kind of put in writing, Luther did as well, Zwingli did as well, but, and Erasmus, had, but Calvin put things in a way that have stood the test of time really well and dealt so broadly how the man had time to write while preaching eight times a week and doing all that. God really, really used him. Um, Sola Christus, through Christ alone, the role of Jesus in salvation, uh, not merely church leaders as priests, but truly the intercession that Christ alone can give. Sola Scriptura, Bible alone is a source of authority. We're thankful for tradition, even as Calvin, as he as he ordered his institutes, and even putting the, encouraging the, the language, today's language, today's language, today's language, and then sola deo gloria, the glory of God as a goal of life. Um, not lists of rules or guarding your own interests or finances or any of those kind of things, but eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that's, that's in a nutshell. Any questions that you might have? We have like two minutes before we need to go. Any questions that you might have? Any comments you might have? Anything? Yeah. How did they hey. biblically justify putting people to death for not like baptizing babies or whatever? Yeah, I mean, they would say you are undermining the church. And if you're undermining the church, we are Romans 13. We've been instituted by God as the authorities, and we don't wield the sword in vain. And so I'm, I'm right there with you. But that was... And, and also, I always think in history, you're somewhat a, you are, you're a student of the time in which you live. And so there's, there's been norms in American history that we look back and we say, how could that happen? And I'm sure there's things now that people are going to look back and say, why did you? But, but that's the norm. Everybody's killing everybody over stuff like this. And, and um, I think at times, looking at the Old Testament in ways that we ought not to, in our current times. So this is a theocracy, so uh, Zurich or Geneva or wherever is going to be just like we are Jerusalem. And if I read in Leviticus and this needs to happen, then, hey, you're done for. You know, we're going to, person's caught in adultery, dad, you get the first rock, let's go. Theocracy in the Old Testament, certainly not what we are ought to do in the New Testament. All right, I think we're out of time, so I will close in prayer, and then we can go. Lord, your goodness is abundant. Will you open our eyes to our failures and our 
times of going along with culture that we don't even recognize when we're not having your word as our rule for faith and practice. And may we continue to see your will be done, your will be done, as we look at church history and even as we make decisions today. In your son's name, amen.